The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawkbox. President Joe Biden unveils his roadmap out of the pandemic in a somber primetime speech, issuing a plea to Americans to get vaccinated when they are offered the jab. I will not relent until we beat this virus. But I need you, the American people. I need you. I need every American to do their part. U.S. equities rally as the president signs his $1.9 trillion stimulus package into law, with the S&P 500 and the Dow both hitting new highs. Shares in Coupon are surging as much as 40% on their debut in New York, giving the South Korean e-commerce giant a market cap of $84 billion. The CEO tells CNBC the group stands out from the crowd. I think we're unique in our investments in technology and end-to-end integration not only in uh, Korea, but globally. And two Asian giants eyeing two new listings in two very different ways. Baidu seeking to raise $3 billion in a secondary listing in Hong Kong, whilst Grab reportedly takes the SPAC route. Tensions between the EU and AstraZeneca rise as reports suggest the company will miss already reduced vaccine delivery targets, with Commissioner Thierry Breton saying he is not seeing best efforts. President Biden has vowed to offer a COVID vaccine to every American by May the 1st, as he marked the first anniversary of the pandemic with an evening address from the White House. The president outlined his roadmap, highlighting a goal to achieve a greater sense of normality this summer. Here is the truth. The only way to get our lives back, to get our economy back on track, is to beat the virus. You've been hearing me say that for while I was running and the last 50 days I've been president. But this is one of the most complex operations we've under, under, ever undertaken as a nation in a long time. That's why I'm using every power I have as president of the United States to put us on a war footing to get the job done. Well, the president also urged Americans to get the vaccine when they are offered. I will not relent until we beat this virus. But I need you, the American people, I need you. I need every American to do their part. And that's not hyperbole. I need you. I need you to get vaccinated when it's your turn and when you can find an opportunity. If we do our part, if we do this together, By July the 4th, there's a good chance you, your families and friends will be able to get together in your backyard or in your neighborhood and have a cookout and a barbecue and celebrate Independence Day. President Biden has signed his $1.9 trillion stimulus package into law. In a brief statement, he said the bill will support the recovery in the long term. The legislation includes a fresh round of direct payments, as well as an extension to jobless benefits and aid for state governments. 
Yeah, look, I think there's, there's two things I notice from this uh, Biden address, uh, what I think is very interesting and, and very good news for the United States as well. And we've seen the forecast for economic growth this year, which is going to be a bit weird, isn't it? Because of year on year comparisons as well. So again, we talk about base effects and inflation. I think we can talk about that uh, in the economy as well. But there's two things which I think are very positive. One is his statement about May the 1st. And I just pulled out your read again to offer every uh, American, a vaccine, albeit probably only the first vaccine. And of course, you know, there's a difference between having one and two, which we all know now, um, by May the 1st. And this huge amount of money via stimulus checks and support for various parts of the economy, which actually proved so contentious with the Republicans saying some saying this is a lot of it isn't actually to do with COVID now. But but again, money into Americans pockets with a vaccinated population. That sounds stunningly positive to me, which then compares to what's going on in Europe as well. And I know we're going to talk a lot about Europe and vaccines later on, so that's a separate conversation. But I think we can't, uh, as a global channel, talk about US in isolation over there and Europe over here. And I've got to say, the rollout of of coronavirus relief programs has been fraught already in terms of the financial money actually getting into programs to get going here in Europe as well. Plus the vaccination progress has been so... It's been awful. It's, it's just for whatever reason, and whoever's to blame, and I'm not playing that blame game today, but what I'm saying is for whatever reason, whether it's the pharmaceutical companies, the government, the, the process, the, the anti-vaxxers, whatever it may well be, it's been really woeful compared to where we wanted to be at this stage as well. So I think there's a huge compare and contrast. And don't forget, we had a dollar, euro-dollar trade, which got up to 122 at one stage. Now it's come back a little bit as well. But I'm just wondering if this great period for Europe, which we keep hearing about, mm. is going to be delayed. I'm not saying it's not round the corner at some stage, but when you've got US making great guns uh, and Europe having such a tough time of it at the moment. But what is interesting, just my third and final point here, and it's a very brief point, is that the DAX, despite that, is having a great run as well. And, and again, the week-to-day performance, for instance, again, uh, on the Zetra DAX, 4.7% increase compared with the FTSE at 1.6%. Very, very big rally. It has actually outperformed even the NASDAQ in the States. Uh, let me say something that um, is probably going to be unpopular because the markets want this stimulus. Um, there are a lot of people on Main Street in America who want this stimulus and need support. But as Nouriel Rabini points out and uh, neatly picked up by um, uh, Rabo uh, Research, who talked about it this morning, you throw money at a K-shaped recovery. And as has consistently happened, those who have assets and capital will probably be the beneficiaries and those who are currently losing out will probably continue to lose out. And it's the conundrum of monetary policy as well that we've discussed uh, for years here. And the problem now is when you look at the statistics, it's really quite worrying. 80% of the US uh, budget is borrowing effectively at this point. A fifth of personal income in the United States is now public money, effectively recycled taxpayer money or that borrowed money that is providing support for households through personal income. That's quite a big number. And it's something that people should take uh, on board. And of course, debt is drag. Debt is drag, as we've seen from the Japanese experience. So you may get your economic bump now, but down the road, there is a very long workout to come. And again, you know, Larry Summers is not popular with everybody. When he was advising Obama and there was a need for stimulus, he said, go big. 
go big because we need to address the financial crisis that happened in 2008 because this is a financial crisis. This isn't a financial crisis. What we're in at the moment is not a financial crisis. It is a crisis of consumption caused by a pandemic that's forced economies into lockdown. Household income has increased through savings through this period. There are questions that even Larry Summers is asking at this point. Someone who advised a Democratic president and who believes in financial support, if he's saying 1.9 trillion is too much at this stage and it's going into the wrong pockets, then I think you do need to continue to cast a sceptical eye over this. But the markets will love it. Two tiny points. One, this is the third big stimulus as well. I think we've had 900 billion, we've had 2.2 trillion as well. So this is number three as well. So you're talking $5 trillion pretty much, I think, or around about those kind of figures in total as well. So, But the other thing is, I I don't disagree with anything you said, by the way. It's just time scale. You know I have the same enormous long-term concerns uh, about debt that you have as well. I just, I guess what I was saying was in the very short term, we're off to the races on the US economy, potentially from these dual stimuluses on vaccine and the money, as you say, over the long term. I share your concerns and I think Karen does as well. Well, 8.5 million jobs still lost in the month of February. So we talk about the economic scarring and just how quickly a government needs to move to bring back those jobs. But when it comes to the size of the, the GDP boost we're likely to get, I think we're all going to be sitting back in awe of some of the figures. And these were the numbers that Goldman Sachs put forward in their US forecast now for this year, roughly first quarter, 5.5%. You escalate to 11% in the second quarter, a double-digit number, which would just be unbelievable to see across the tape. I don't think we've seen anything like that for, for many, many years in the coverage of financial markets looking at the United States. Uh, 8.5% on the third quarter, then winding back down to 6% for the fourth quarter. And I think what jumped out to me was when we were covering a lot of the economic numbers around the early part of this crisis, just how weak they were. And the one that jumped out was France in particular, as we saw the services side of the economy barely in the teens. I think we're going to be in for some extraordinary numbers now because of this stimulus uh, that we're getting in the United States. But in terms of the overall impact and what investors should do. And yesterday you saw just about everything bounce. The Dow was very much back in favour again, but so too was technology, the momentum stocks that we spoke about, but also the FANG. So everything across the the board just got lifted. But I was just doing some digging and some research that uh, DataTrek Research had put forward. And they're looking at the Dow components and saying basically it's just six names that have been behind the record highs that you've witnessed to date. That's uh, Goldman Sachs, Caterpillar, Chevron, BA, uh, which is Boeing, uh, JP Morgan and and American Express. So again, a little bit of a narrow leadership in some of those stocks. So perhaps the stimulus will see a widening out effect beyond some of these names as we see consumption also start to play on the back of the stimulus. Excellent points. All of the above, Karen. Thank you very much. It's very interesting, that data track stuff especially. Okay, let's tell you a little bit more about the data. Karen's talking about the the number of people still uh, unemployed in the States. Well, the U.S. weekly jobless claims rose to 712,000 last week. That's below expectations and the lowest since November. Nearly 10 million Americans uh, remain unemployed after an initial slump in the labor market at the start of the pandemic. Quick look at the U.S. markets for you as well. As Karen was saying, everything seemed to be on the rising tired yesterday. The Dow was uh, the laggard up six temps. The Nasdaq, which has had a stunningly busy week, hasn't it? I mean, my goodness me, we saw some heavy declines earlier on this week, followed by a massive rally. Some of the biggest moves we've seen since last year, since November last year as well. 2.5% on Friday. Do you want to see the week today? 
I know you. Go on, go on. 3.14% higher for the Dow week today. The S&P's up 25 The Nasdaq up 3.7. As I said, over here in Europe, the uh, DAX up 4.7 week today. Dear old FTSE, which had a bit of leadership a week or so ago, only up 1.6%. Okay, let's have a look at the Treasuries. 1.5 something. Here we go. 1.57 as well. Um, we've talked a lot about this. We'll carry on talking about this as well. I think the ramifications of every single decimal here is really, really important given everything that Mr. Cutmore just said uh, and given everything Karen just said about the jobs numbers as well. You know, if the jobs start improving dramatically, the Fed might be forced into a different turn of language regardless of what the inflation aspect is looking like. Again, those checks are coming in now. Those $1,400 checks, which I incidentally found that Biden won't be personally signing. You know, the ones that went out before from... No, 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 seriously, I know she's laughing, but Trump had his signature on the, the original checks Biden won't be having his signature on there. So maybe that tells you a little bit about the two men. I don't know. Have a look at Asian indices. Uh, Here we are. The Nikkei 225 is up 1.7%. That's the standout today, isn't it? 1.7% increase for the Japanese blue chips. Well, coming up later, our colleague stateside will hold the first TV interview with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Do not miss that. That is at 1400 Central European time. Is it a selling site? Is it a delivery service? It's all of those things. And you can get WOW Rocket membership. Coupang's New York listing delivers a major boost for the e-commerce giant. We'll talk about it when we come back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Jeff Cutmore from CNBC. There are some obvious do's. Do focus on depth of shot and good lighting. Do be prepared for tech failures. Adapt, apologize and move on. Do expect the unexpected. The sound or a guest could drop at any time. And do give the same energy to your laptop camera that you would give to a camera in a studio. And finally... I was going... The South Korean e-commerce giant Coupang has closed up 40% on its debut session on Thursday and continued to gains after hours. Uh, this is the big SoftBank-backed company, which uh, clearly has had uh, an incredible listing. What is the, one of the biggest international listings uh, in the United States since Alibaba back in 2014. Uh, the uh, e-commerce giant uh, tapping into what, of course, has been one of the biggest pandemic trends, the switch in business towards online. We've seen a whole string of traditional companies reporting this week and some of the luxury space, some more down market. And they've uh, certainly been at the forefront of that change too, the digital acceleration that's taken place. But let's get out to Sherry for a little bit more on the story. Sherry. Thank you very much, Karen. So during the Asian programming this morning, we've been saying that Coupang delivers and it's a debut or Coupang skyrockets. And uh, actually, this is an e-commerce giant in South Korea that is known for rocket 
delivery because they are so fast. So same day delivery or pre-dawn delivery. So this is really the market leader in South Korea and uh, going all the way to New York to list. And uh, they did see that 40% of an upside right at the market closed on the first trading day from the issue price of 35 US dollars per piece. And of course, regarding this issue price to begin with, they've been upsizing it quite a, a few a couple for a couple of times as well. And uh, you're looking at, of course, Bum Kim, the CEO and founder of Coupon, ringing the bell there. And uh, he talked about how they're just getting started with this IPO. But there are questions regarding when Coupon is going to turn profitable. And this is what he had to say. Our investors understand that in the long run, the incredible value that we build for our customers are always going to be aligned and will come back in the form of value for shareholders. Shareholders and investors have always been, shareholders and customers have always been aligned in the long term. I think, uh, you know, for many short-term investors, we may not be the right company, but for long-term investors who who understand that long-term customer value brings back shareholder value, uh, you know, we're excited to partner with them on this journey. So it wasn't exactly a clear answer in terms of when Coupon is going to turn profitable or whether the management at Coupon has any uh, kind of visibility in terms of when that might happen. But it certainly looks like they're more interested in growing uh, for now. And perhaps that that's really the premium that investors are putting on the name Coupon, because, of course, uh, compared to some of the Chinese competitions like Alibaba or Amazon in the United States, the growth is there, but not as much as this newcomer in South Korea as well. And, of course, so you're looking at the chart for SoftBank and a major windfall for early top investors like SoftBank's Division Fund, as well as a BlackRock and many others is a big uh, another a big angle that we need to talk about when it comes to Coupon's debut on the new York Stock Exchange, which was, by the way, Jeff, the very first for a South Korean company ever on the New York Stock Exchange. Incredible business. And and the DNA to this is just astonishing. The fact the founder was a Harvard Business School dropout. You don't get any more blue blood in the tech world than someone who went to an Ivy League college and dropped out. Astonishing. Um, Terrific, Sherry. Thank you so much for that. Baidu is offering new shares for a secondary listing in Hong Kong. It's selling 95 million shares at a price not exceeding 295 million uh, Hong Kong, sorry, 295 Hong Kong dollars or just over 38 US dollars. That would see the Chinese search giant raise 3.6 billion US dollars at the upper end of the range. The Hong Kong listed shares will start trading on March 23rd. Baidu's US listed shares rose on the news on Thursday. The Asian ride hailing app Grab is reportedly preparing a $40 billion listing by merging with a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC. It would be the largest blank check deal ever. Grab executives are reportedly aiming to raise up to $4 billion from private investors and are believed to be in talks with Silicon Valley VC firm Ultimeter, which has backed two SPACs.
U.S. SPAC listings have raised over $80 billion already this year, closing in on the full year record of $83 billion set in 2020. I think it's safe to say they'll surpass that. Uh, investment firm Interprivate has three SPACs which raised $810 million in IPOs last week. Interprivate's vehicles focus on acquisition targets in tech and digital infrastructure. It's first SPAC listed last year and is set to complete a merger with car technology startup Eva uh, today. Well, Ahmed M. Fatou is the CEO and founder of Interprivate Acquisition Corp and joins us now. Ahmed, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And just if we can just start a very nice, easy question on the first one. Just remind our viewers why SPACs are so exciting for them as investors, as opposed to for people like yourself as the founders of these SPACs. Sure. Uh, well, you know, a SPAC, uh, when first listed, uh, offers investors the opportunity of both uh, a store of value because the uh, investment uh, just sits in a trust uh, earning uh, interest like any other cash type of instrument, uh, but with the optionality of participating in a deal, much as they would if they had an allocation in IPO, uh, when we find our target and announce the transaction, uh, the investor then has the choice to remain in the deal or to redeem their original investment uh, at the original $10 share price. So that's why it's quite interesting to investors and uh, in, in some ways, uh, a, uh, a free option to look at uh, the transaction or take back their money. That's really good. And thank you for the clarity. But, but, but in my mind, if the founders and managers of these SPACs are getting, and I've heard these kind of numbers, around about 10 to 20% shareholding in the SPAC, surely that puts that private, that retail, that uh, investor coming in from all kinds of um, walks of life and parts of the market, surely that puts them at an immediate discount of the value of the actual underlying assets? Well, I think uh, the first thing to keep in mind is that uh, the percentage you're talking about is a percentage related to the SPAC size, but the actual dilution to the investor relates to the ultimate deal size, the, the ultimate size of the company that you merge into. So if we are running a $200 million SPAC and we merge into a billion dollar company and end up owning uh, a fifth of it or something to that effect, depending on how much is redeemed or what have you, the SPAC spawn sponsor dilution that people are talking about is, is a lot more like 3 or 4% than 10 or 20%. Uh, so it's not very different than uh, management equity around any sort of corporate. Company. Sure. And while that, that's great clarity, th there is still some stuff I don't understand, i.e. this extraordinary valuation jump that we're seeing in so many SPACs before they've done deals. So as you say, they're cash-like instruments with at that moment that investors get into them before they've done a deal, the founders and managers of those on those 10 to 20% shares of those SPACs. So investors who are buying into SPACs that haven't done deals, you agree with me then, are, are at a massive discount on their value of their asset before the deal is done? No, because the actual the equity that the SPAC managers receive is worth zero unless the deal is done. So if at the end of the day, the SPAC managers don't uh, end up executing a transaction that everybody's excited about, uh, all that equity is wiped out. The equity that came in for people who put up the money into the IPOs or were buying listed shares, that all goes back to them as cash. Uh, but the sponsor equity that was set up to run the working capital of the SPAC, that all just gets wiped out. 
Um, can you talk to me as to why some of the Silicon Valley names, these uh, startup uh, ventures are now looking to, towards SPACs as an option? It used to be apparently be a, uh, a fairly uh, shunned process for Silicon Valley names, but now very much part of the big mix for boards, which I find quite staggering if you look at some of the IPOs and how well they've done, you know, IPOs that have tripled since last year. Why would an, an entrepreneur want to bring a, a company that they've founded to a SPAC instead of taking it on the standalone IPO process? Sure. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, of uh, phenomena at work there. First of all, um, the SPAC structure, which exploded last year, it's not really a coincidence. Uh, you know, we were actually uh, on the podium of the New York Stock Exchange exactly a year ago today, and it was the day after the pandemic was declared. So the uh, market dropped 2,400 points at my fingertips, so hopefully that won't happen today for everyone. Uh, but, uh, you know, we all went home and we had a couple of months uh, where everyone was a deer in headlights. However, what happened after that was that uh, entrepreneurs and founders of, of uh, technology companies and other high-growth companies realized that uh, the SPAC structure allowed them to do something a traditional IPO doesn't allow you to do, which is to share the projections regarding the future because you're not actually doing a public listing when you're merging with a SPAC. You are merging an existing private company and you're free to speak about the future in your, mer in your merger negotiation with a SPAC. So when you have a year like last year where COVID uh, made everything very uncertain about 2020 and you wanted to start talking about what was going to happen post-COVID, uh, you couldn't do that in a regular IPO and you could do it in a SPAC merger. So you'd be able to speak about the pro forma 2021, 2022 type of uh, trajectory. Of course, once that happened, a lot of uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs also realized if they had business plans that had defensible projections that went out further, uh, they could take a look at 23, 24, 25. In my opinion, uh, that's only valid if you have some uh, fairly uh, robust uh, assumptions that can be diligenced and some contracts, commercial partnerships, things that give you a good sense for what that future looks like. But the bottom line is you could not do any of this in an IPO because of the regulations. And that's really what has led uh, Silicon Valley to embrace uh, the SPAC structure. What's jumped out to me has been how quickly other exchanges, other international cities are trying to catch up to the United States where they've seen what's happened in New York and said, we want part of the action on SPACs. Are there any clear advantages that the U.S. has or do you see other markets being able to play a very competitive role with SPACs? Well, I think the, um, the advantage in the U.S. of a SPAC over an IPO in the U.S. is probably most stark because of the uh, regulation that I mentioned around a U.S. IPO and the lack of a safe, safe harbor for forward-looking projections. So the structure around uh, or the regulatory regime around private placements and M&A, which allows for forward-looking statements, uh, offers a very stark advantage over a U.S. listing. I think if you think about other listings, it'll really depend on what are the rules in those listings and what are the rules that are going to govern SPACs in those listings and how different are the IPO rules than the SPAC rules in each of those jurisdictions. And I really can't speak to each one overseas, uh, but I would imagine that there are probably going to be uh, uh, disparate outcomes depending on the regulatory regimes in each one. I would add to that that just the number of U.S. companies that have the sort of growth profile that is attractive to investors who participate in, uh, in SPAC transactions, uh, it's obviously a larger number of companies that have the sort of growth, uh, growth 
look profile as well as uh, the market cap size. You're really looking for companies that are typically in that unicorn status of a billion dollars or more uh, with a high growth profile. And uh, there are more of those in the U.S. than there are overseas, although we certainly are seeing some overseas who are trying to come and list in the U.S. markets to uh, to uh, uh, take advantage of the structure here. Ahmed, um, they are often pump and dumps. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Nate Kopikar, co-founder of the hedge fund, uh, also partners in Institutional Investor. He says the lofty projections made by SPACs are 100% helping create a bubble mentality. Wasn't the point of the IPO process about limiting the often outlandish Uh, claims that are sometimes made about growth projections and financial projections. By bypassing that formal process, aren't we now in a situation where people actually are allowed to make relatively outlandish calls? How do we bring discipline to the SPAC market and then ensure the protection of underlying investors? Because, I mean, CNBC tracks SPAC performance and I think the last time I looked, 66% of them were trading below the offering price. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to unpack there. Uh, So first of all, I think uh, there's uh, plenty of evidence that there's a lot of hubris in in both uh, traditional IPO outcomes as well as uh, SPAC situations. Uh, I do agree that if you take, uh, I mean, the data is there, if you take the the long history of SPACs uh, and uh, and see how those have done. Uh, there was certainly historically adverse selection, uh, but I actually think if you look now, uh, if you are a, a pre-IPO company and you have the choice to come public through a SPAC now or wait for an IPO, uh, it is a very rare company now that is deciding to wait that extra year or two, uh, provided that they're actually ready to come out. Uh, and again, I come back to saying that uh, the the dynamic has changed and the target universe has changed. So the quality of the SPAC sponsors. The quality of the companies is really what's going to define whether this is going to be a good stock or not later on. So I'd be curious to see what it looks like in a year or two. I do think with the sheer number that are being launched, it's inevitable that uh, you're going to have some that are more speculative than others. And I think this comes down to vetting the sponsors and sponsors vetting the companies. Uh, but I, I would point you to I could point to a, a whole bunch of companies where whether or not they were able to point to projections. People were speculating as to where they were going, irrespective of what they could or couldn't tell. In fact, I would argue that there's a little bit more accountability when it's actually the SPAC or actually the the target company that's giving you that information. Let me just ask you a very quick follow-up question here, because um, the VC industry makes its pitch on the basis of we bring support and skill into early stage businesses and we help them grow and we help them find a path. Um, This has now robbed the VCs at the late stage of these businesses of the exit that they were going to uh, hope to achieve to be um, profitable for both them and for the businesses they're, they're getting involved in. Is this process now, the SPAC process, is this making late stage VC funding and the involvement of VCs in these businesses redundant? Is it finally exposing the fact that actually maybe many of these companies didn't need VCs in the first place? Well, I think we we have to sort of parse that a little bit insofar as early stage, mid stage and and late stage VCs are, are quite different animals. I think it's absolutely the case that the SPAC structure is 
cannibalizing the immediate pre-IPO round. And I think there's probably a pretty good argument, with some notable exceptions, that the pre-IPO round did not involve a lot of uh, value-added investing by a fund that gets involved, um, you know, six to 18 months before a company is public. A lot of the heavy lifting has been done. So I do think that uh, there is that cannibalization, uh, but I don't think that those were, uh, first of all, again, I want to, I want to be clear that there are plenty of, of, uh, of venture firms that are, are still adding value by the end, but I do believe, uh, I agree that, uh, the SPAC structure, uh, is crowding that out because if you think about it and you're a company and you can get a superior price in the public markets with less of the constraints that you would have with a venture capitalist uh, who would be in there with uh, what's known as a liquidation preference, which means they get their money back before the founders do, and all of the restrictions that the uh, that the VC will require. Uh, it's a pretty easy decision, and that, again, is why the very best companies now are choosing to come out via SPAC route. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.